These are crazy times we live in, isn't it? I was talking with someone earlier, and uh, back in March, first part of March, somebody said to me, well, probably we're going to have to stop doing church services for a while. And I actually said to them, well, if that happens, y'all better take care of Ann, because clearly I'm dead. Um, and uh, and it was uh, Mark Twain said, if you want to make the Lord laugh, tell him your plan. So that's the way it's worked out. And as we have gone now several months, um, it i got to be honest, it felt a little weird this morning just opening up the church, um, doing something that for seven years I've done every Sunday, unlocking the doors and keying the doors and everything and walking around, prayer, kind of praying as I walk and thinking about everything. It, it felt strange. It felt strange to, to hear that sound that I love, to hear the, the noise of the kids running up and down in the halls. And um, It's easy with all that's going on. Um, in fact, I, Monday, uh, after Scott's uh, passing and just the, the week that we had with Steve passing, and um, Monday I, was, I spent some time on, on Facebook and just reading about what's going on with uh, Antifa and, and, and going around our country, and I, 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 by that late afternoon, I was just straight up depressed. It just seems like the whole world has lost its mind. We literally, I saw a debate in the comments section about what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a woman among Christians. And I'm like, ah, how did we get to this point? I saw believers defending racism. I saw believers arguing for, it's just, in fact, I, this is just, I'm sharing with you, I've decided that um, I'm going to get, take a short period of time once a day to make sure, because some of you people won't call the church if you go to the hospital, um, to just to make sure nobody in the church is anything bad happening. I'm getting off social media. I can't, I, I'm immature. I can't deal with it. I, I can't handle it. Um, it, it, get, it messes with my emotions. It makes me feel like the, the world is decaying around us, and, and I, I just can't deal. But even beyond that, if you just look at the world that we live in right now, it would be easy for us to think that God is losing. I, I did a, just before we started this morning, I did a Google search um, for the church in decline. I got 20,000 hits for the church in decline. Top articles were, uh, in the U.S., decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. We're at the end of white Christian America. What will that mean? Washington Post, this week, Christianity is dying. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's so bad that Wikipedia has actually has an entire page that's multiple sections long on the decline of Christianity. And in it, they... If you read the article, it gives you some startling, startling statistics. In 2016, 73.7% of the population said that they were Christians, but less than 11% said they had attended church in the last year. In the Catholic Church, of the people who, have, who say that they're Catholic, less than 8% attend in any given year. In the last five years, 
The United Methodist Church has lost 16% of its congregation. The Presbyterian Church between 2000 and 2015 has lost over 40% of its congregation. 40%. Infant baptism has decreased by 34%. It just feels like we're losing. Things that we love are dying. If you look, no, you don't have to look at Google. You can just think about in our community. In 1980, there were over 100 churches in the EBA, the Etowah Baptist Association. Right now, there are 82. Of those 82, 50%, over half, 50% are currently labeled as extreme danger. And this is what they, they, what they use to define that. If something doesn't change in the next two years, this is over 50% of the churches in the EBA, if something doesn't change in the next two years, those churches will close their doors. If you look at if something doesn't change in the next five years, those churches will close the doors. The statistics get up around 70%. The average population of the churchgoer in Etowah County, the average age of the churchgoer in Etowah County is 70. It doesn't take a statistician to say that's not sustainable. You don't even have to go that far. The other day I was... It was about a month or so ago, I was talking to uh, Bobby, and he was saying how he can remember, and some of you will remember, having jubilees at this church, that you got here in the morning and listened to a sermon, you ate lunch, you came back in the afternoon, and you had two sermons, and lots and lots, all of that's interdispersed with, not singing, sanging. You went home, changed clothes, because you were all sweaty from singing, came back that night and stayed till 10 and filled the church up Monday through Friday, turned people away on Friday night in the life of this church. If we had a Monday morning sermon being preached at North Glencoe, in three weeks, and we advertised it, and somebody got in the pulpit, at 9 o'clock on a Monday morning, it would be me and the preacher. Does anybody doubt that? So it's easy for us as a tribe to say we're losing. We've lost. Maybe we just need to wave the white flag. But I want us to hold on to some truths here. And the first truth is, is that it's really easy for us to confuse church, lowercase c, the church, with church, uppercase c, United Methodist Church, North Glencoe Baptist Church, and because it's hard for us to separate those things in our mind. And when we think of church, like a church, we think of pews and carpet and, and, and floors and people. And pews wear out. Chairs fall apart. Carpet gets worn out and it looks old and stale. 
Buildings run down. People run down. I mean, we all, don't we? Every time I get up every morning, I think, where did that pain come from? Why is my hip hurting? Goodness. We run down. Even beyond physically, this may be shocking information to you, but people can get on your nerves. I mean, we're supposed to love everybody, but it's just being honest here. There's some people you don't like, right? There's some people that when you see them coming in church or not, you go, oh, goody. Yay. But what do we do in church? It is so good to see you, don't we? So it's easy to get that confused with the church, the beginning of the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he started something that would last for eternity. We are participating in the kingdom of God. We are coming along beside those believers from last generation who, who would sing, I'll fly away at the top of their voice. And you would hear people breaking out in harmony. And then the generation before them, and the generation before them, and the generation before them, maybe all the way back to the Reformation, we stand shoulder with shoulder with Martin Luther as he nailed those 95 theses to the door. We stand shoulder to shoulder with Augustine who wrote the kingdom of God, the city of God and said, you know what, Rome can fall by the wayside. We are a part of a kingdom that will live forever. Our first allegiance is not to a flag and a country, but to a king and a kingdom. And that kingdom will last for eternity. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the physical part and forget that that's not what's important. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. See, even then, but when the thing was first starting out, Paul is saying, all right, everybody calm down. Don't lose heart, though our outer shell is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We don't look at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal. So I want us to focus today as we celebrate coming back together, as we celebrate being his people together, I want us to look at this eternal thing that we're involved in in the church. You can't talk about the church unless you back all the way up to the book of Matthew when Jesus first mentions the church. Jesus was in the city of Caesarea Philippi, walking out of the city, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they, they listed off all these prophets. And then he looked at them and said, who do you say that I am? Now that's an all-important question. To gain membership to the church universal, you got to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Not who your grandmother says that I am. Not who your mama says that I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered that question by saying, Peter, the, 
the uh, guy who walked around with the eternal uh, athlete's tongue, Peter, who always opened his mouth and engaged his mouth long before he engaged his brain, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, that ain't normal for you, buddy. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father revealed that to you. You're Peter, and on that rock, I will build my church. Now, there's a word play that we miss in English. I don't, I don't normally try to bring in, well, the Greek says, but in this case, we got to know it because we don't understand the word play because in translation, it's lost. Peter is Simon's nickname. Jesus gave it to him, probably implying that he wasn't the brightest bulb in the bulb bucks all the time because it means little pebble. When I was in the Marine Corps, if you did something really dumb, the drill instructor would often say, son, you are a rock. That meant that you were dumb. You were as smart as that box of rocks. So Jesus is calling Peter little pebble. That's his nickname. And Jesus says, you're Peter. You're a little rock. And on this rock, and then here he uses a different word that means a huge boulder, something that's unmovable, something that isn't going to change, something that just is there and you build a house around it because we ain't moving it. You're a little rock, but on the rock of what you just said, I will build my church. What did Peter say? He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one of God, the son of a living God, which means that he was equating Jesus with deity. The Pharisees were angry when Jesus called himself the son of God because he was counting himself equal with God. So calling him the son of God doesn't mean that he's lesser than God, but that he's on equal par with God himself. And so Jesus said, our Peter had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, on that rock, Peter, on that truth, I will build my church. Now that sentence that Jesus said is unbelievably important. Because first of all, we see he said, my church. The thing about this eternal church is that it, it ain't ours. It's Jesus' church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not the preacher's church. It's not even the people's church. Whenever there's a, a tornado and a church gets blown away, I hear people on TV say, well, you know that church in that building? It's just the people. No, it's Jesus' church. It's not the people's church. He owns it. He bought it. It's my church, Jesus said. And he said, I am the builder of that church. It isn't our job to build the church. It's Jesus' job to build the church. It's our job to obey Jesus. He said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So our job as members of that universal church is to lift up Jesus. You know, if we spent more time talking about Jesus than we did our opinion about the world's problems, we'd fix a lot of stuff. I've quoted Brother Bill from this pulpit. Brother Bill Ellen used to say, the problem with the world ain't in the White House. The problem with the world ain't in the courthouse. The problem with the world is in the church house. And when the people of God start acting like the people of God, then that'll fix the problems. 
Now, I've heard, I've been told, because I've quoted that from this pulpit before, that he wasn't the first one to say it, which doesn't surprise me at all. But nonetheless, I don't know who the original author is, but I just, uh, sure, I ain't taking credit for it. But there's, that's reality. If we spent more time talking about Jesus instead of ourselves, a lot of problems would be fixed. If we recognize the fact that we've got nothing in ourselves to be arrogant about, but that we are all people who are deserving of hell, who God saved, we need a savior. That's the whole point of Christianity. How dare we point our finger at anybody and say I'm better than him. The whole reason why we gather is because we need a savior. We're lost and without hope without him. So Jesus said, you're Peter and on that rock I will build my church. And so our objective then is to participate in what he's doing, not in doing our own thing. Where we go astray is when we get becoming about doing our thing instead of doing his thing. And his thing is always in magnifying and glorifying and worshiping Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means, though hell itself rage against the church, and assure you, my brother, it does. Constantly, continuously, repeatedly, the gates of hell rage against the church. Now that means that nothing is going to overcome the church. The church is not dead. The church is victorious and triumphant. And so long as we as a church participate in what, what God's doing, this church will be triumphant. But the moment we choose to do our own thing, the moment we decide that this is my church, my grandmama started this church and we're going to do it my way, kind of an attitude. Now, I'll be honest, uh, since I've been here at North Glencoe, I really haven't experienced that a whole lot. But in my ministry, I have. And I use those examples to warn us. I've been in a church. I was in a church in North Gadsden, uh, goodness, 1984 or so, where the church that I grew up in had come along beside that church, and we were doing some backyard Bible clubs and a VBS. And on Tuesday nights, one of those little poor kids that we had brought to church wrote on the wall in the little vestibule, and the chairman of the deacons shut the VBS down. And I thought to myself, as a 14-year-old, I thought, this church is already dead. They're just waiting on the tombstone. It's a zombie church. It's dead. It's still shuffling around, but it's dead. So we have to focus on being about the mission of God, getting the story of Jesus out there, magnifying, glorifying Jesus. And so long as we're doing that, nothing can come against us. The whole world can crumble around us. Jesus' church will stand. For the last 2,000 years, monarchs and tyrants have tried to stamp out the church unsuccessfully. In fact, every time the boot of civil authority falls on the neck of the church, the church explodes in growth. Every time. The gates of hell will not prevail. 
Furthermore, Paul goes on to teach us that Jesus not only bought the church, owns the church, he's providing for the equipping of the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh, I love that sentence. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh, how I long to see Christ in his fullness. Someday, my beloved, someday, right now we look through a glass dimly, but on that day we will see him face to face. Mm. No longer will we be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus not only owns the church, bought the church, he's equipping the church. I've seen that in my ministry time and time again. Somebody has to move. Some, something goes here. Somebody goes over there. God always provides for the needs of his people. Jesus, in fact, went so far as to say that if my word abides in you and you abide in me, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. We are warriors at battle for the building of the kingdom of God. He equips his people. We are lacking nothing. We aren't running around with age-old equipment that's all falling apart. We don't have low-bid contractor weapons. We've got the best. God's word is perfect. We have needs. Jesus said, fall on your knees. Call out to me. I'll provide it. That's not to say that we do that. It's not to say that we're bright enough to cry out for daddy, but it's saying that Jesus provides for his church. And then finally, we see the purpose in the church. Just after the last service, um, someone came to me and said, uh, hey, I, in my quiet time, I read Isaiah 66 uh, this morning, and it's your sermon. And so I was reading it, and it is. In Isaiah 66, it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And what is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah goes on to talk about all the ways that people have failed the Lord and their sin. But it ends with, behold, in verse 15, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flame and fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword and all flesh. And all those slain by the Lord shall be many. But those who sanctify and purify themselves will go into gardens following one another in the midst. You see, as far back as Isaiah, this principle is laid down. 
God made everything that is. He's calling us to be his people, to come along with him as he builds his kingdom on this world. If we choose to wander off after the world stuff, so be it. But if we focus and, and we live a life for him, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever you sow, that will you reap. That can be a beautiful promise. And the purpose of all of this, from the text that Amanda read, where it says, and they went up to the mountain, some doubted, but they worshiped him. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. The reason why we do what we do, the reason why God has chosen to build his kingdom the way that he has, is so that he will receive the maximum amount of glory. All of this is about his glory. It's all about worship. It's all about us proclaiming we are God's people and he's enough. Take away my home. I still praise him. Take away my stuff. He's enough. The rest of the world can run after whatever they want to run after. They can run after their trinkets. They can run after fear. They can run and hide whenever they want to. But we know that in this life and in the next, our primary mission is to worship. What we did this morning as we sang the praises of God was preparing for eternity. We will spend all eternity saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world to receive honor and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. So whether you as a believer die on this earth, you take your last breath here on this earth, or whether you're as a believer who's called home in the second coming, Paul regardless says in 1 Thessalonians, I would not have you ignorant, my brothers, about those who have gone before for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those of us who are alive and remain will join them in the air. And together we will be with them forever. In Revelation, the story ends this way. Revelation chapter 5, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessed in honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said amen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's going to happen and we, as a part of the church, are participating. We are marching onward to Zion. With the songs of praise of the Lamb on our lips, we are a part of the church universal. We are a part of the church triumphant. Father God, Lord, I thank you that with your blood you purchased clothes for us that are spotless. Lord, as it seems the world around us is collapsing. Lord, I pray that we would look to you. 
that echoing in our hearts would be, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Lord, forgive us how often we take our eyes off you and look to the storm. Forgive us for how often we reach over your book and pick up our phone to look on Facebook. God, forgive us for how often in worry and angst we don't pray. Lord, help us to put on the whole armor of God and so stand against what the enemy's trying to do. Lord, we love you and we thank you that your word so well equipped us for what is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.